0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash
1: host. It sounds almost like a story written by a revisionist proletarian historian. But it's true and objective, discovered, over the course of a century, slowly, painstakingly, by many archaeologists. Sometimes reality is more fascinating than fiction. Alphabet, the invention of writing in set of letters representing units of sounds that distinguish words, was an invention of the socially marginal. Dramatic archaeological evidence analyzed at the very end of the 20th century, revealed That not Egyptians, but foreign workers, soldiers, and the like, speaking a Semitic language, a Bronze Age ancestor of the Phoenician and Hebrew and Aramaic, studied their master's way and came up with the idea of a purely alphabetic system. Like the Egyptian counterpart, the Semitic would only show consonants. To include vowels would have made the letters too many for easy learning a gloriously simple system invented for the masses. It gave power to write and read to their little people, laborers, merchants, soldiers. Northern Canaanites, a Semitic people that we call Phoenicians, would survive the violent and bloodthirsty Iron Age and be the defining parents of our modern alphabet, which they took with them across the Mediterranean, from Lebanon, Cyprus to Sardinia, to Cadiz, A junior officer among the Amu, the Asiatic mercenaries and soldiers serving in the Egyptian army, named Bebi, is patrolling a road linking the Nile cities by land and gives access to the eastern desert and the Red Sea. On a shortcut of a road amid scorching desert hills and hidden valleys, Alongside cliffs of cream colored limestone, connecting the royal city of Thebes with Abydos in the north, our early writer Baby inscribed a prayer on a rock to a deity, a prayer for aid on the desert crossing. Carved on a stone, permanent and spiritually potent, the writer's name would be seen and spoken by future generations of passerbys, a condition appropriate for the soul in the afterlife. It was a long-lived, stable and rich, a maritime empire. A city, but also a state, spread in two continents with a seed sown in a third one. These people were no others but the Carthaginians. Their forefathers, the Phoenicians, entire Sidon and Byblos, were commercially minded people. Traders, sailors, navigators. They had a common language and they were worshipping the same gods, but they weren't a unified nation as such. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host and your archaeogastro-sailor, Tom Dinas. On each episode, we explore the foods, the dishes of uh, banquets and feasts, ...from ancient civilizations... ...from our ancestors... ...and we're trying... ...to gather as much evidence of the recipes... ...and the ingredients they use... ...for their everyday food... ...but also... ...the most important feasts... ...and at the same time... ...find out a lot more... ...about the history of the common people... ...and their way of life... ...things that are usually forgotten... ...by the glorious histories... Of uh, kings and emperors of battles and destructions it's worth always remembering the question of what was to live in that era and that city hundreds or thousands of years ago what did people do for pleasure and what was that triggered their curiosity? Come and join me on today's episode exploring the history of one of the most forgotten civilizations in the ancient Mediterranean, the Carthaginians and their ancestors, the Phoenicians. Twenty minutes outside the modern capital of Tunisia, Tunis, lies the ruins of once of the most powerful city. In the western mediterranean lasting for nearly 500 years and it's very frustrating and to an eternal exasperation of scholars that we don't have any surviving texts from this amazing civilization the reason for this it's simple romans since the romans sacked the city of Carthage and destroyed most of its libraries and archives, virtually nothing known of the Carthaginian people has been cleaned from primary sources. With Carthage, there is nothing but some huge gaps. According to legend, Carthage was founded by the Phoenician Queen Elisa, better known as Dido, around 814 BCE. Although Dido's historicity has been challenged, the founding of the city does date about this time. Dido was allegedly fleeing the tyranny of her brother Pygmalion of Lebanon and landed on the coast of North Africa where she established the city on the high hill later known as Birsa. The legend claims that a Berber chieftain who controlled the region told her she could have as much land as an oxhide could cover. Dido cut a single oxhide into thin strips and laid them end-to-end around the hill, successfully claiming it for her people. Dido's reign is described by the Roman poet Virgil and others, and is described as impressive, noting how the city grew from the small community on the hill to a grand metropolis. This account, and others like it, are legendary, but Carthage, which seems to initially have been a minor port on the coast where Phoenician traders stopped to resupply or repair the ships, was clearly a major centre of trade by the 4th century BCE. The city developed significantly following Alexander's destruction of the great industrial and trade centre of Tyre, which is, most likely, the mother city of Carthage, where from the, the first colonies and merchants and sailors sailed to create the city of Carthage. So. In a twist of fate, these Tyrians arrived with whatever wealth they had and since many whom Alexander spared were those rich enough to buy their lives, they landed in the city with considerable means which established Carthage as the new centre of Phoenician trade. On the ruins remaining today, just outside um, Tunis, one can see what's left of the legendary circular harbours of uh, Carthage. They were immense, with 220 docks and gleaming columns which rose around it in a half-circle, in front of towering arches and buildings ornamented with Greek sculpture. One harbour was for trade and the other for warships, which operated constantly in resupplying, repairing and outfitting vessels. The Carthaginian trading ships sailed daily to ports around the Mediterranean Sea, while their navy, supreme in the region, kept them safe and also opened new territories for trade and resources through conquest as the Carthaginians built their empire. The Phoenician and the Carthaginian, later on, trade network brought them in contact with nations of the Mediterranean and the Near East. Uh, Egypt, Assyria, the Jewish kingdom, the Arameans of Damascus, the Etruscans of Western Italy, the kingdom of Tartessus in southern Spain, and a marginal but ambitious northeast Mediterranean people. The Greeks, trade prompted the dissemination of the Phoenicians' alphabet, and by about 900 BC, the Jews, the Arameans, and other Near Eastern peoples had copied Phoenician letters for their own use. By around 800 BC, the Greeks did uh, likewise. The Phoenicians and subsequently Carthaginians, they grew really, really rich and powerful by controlling the silver mines of Tartessus in southern Spain. This is more or less modern-day Andalusia. And there is the connection, they want to protect this trade. And that's why they kept growing in power and controlling the flow of trade in the Western Mediterranean. Of interest here, I suppose, is um, the Carthaginian system of governance and how that um, allowed allowed them to flourish and uh, advance their society. The Carthaginian government, formerly a monarchy, was a republic based on meritocracy, which was the rule of the elite by the 4th century BC, The top position was held by two elected magistrates, known as Sufetes, judges, who governed in conjunction with the Senate, of between 200 to 300 members, who held the position for life. Laws were passed by an assembly of citizens who would vote on measures proposed by the Suffets and Senate. The aristocrats lived in palaces, the less affluent in modest but attractive houses, and the lower classes in apartments or huts outside the city. Tributes and tariffs regularly increased the city's wealth on top of the lucrative business in maritime trade. The city's wealth was due not only to its advantageous position on the North African coast, from which it could control sea traffic between itself and its colony in Sicily, but also to the people's skill in agriculture. The writer Mago of Carthage wrote a work of 28 volumes devoted to agriculture and veterinary science, which was considered the most comprehensive on the subject of its time and reflects the Carthaginians' intense interest in farming and animal husbandry. Mago's, or Mago's works, were considered so important that they were among the few that would be spared by the Romans after Carthage's final defeat in 146 BCE. Roman references to the books are now all that remain of them. The Carthaginians planted fruit trees, grapes, olive trees and vegetables in a ring of gardens irrigated by small canals and then expanded their cultivation outward, beyond the city walls, to fields of grains. The fertility of the land and their expertise in cultivation increased the city's wealth through trade with the interior as well as maritime trade elsewhere as Carthage continued to flourish. Itself over the years, it became the mother city of many other colonies. The city's trading relations covered much of the western Mediterranean, extending westwards along the Atlantic coast of Europe and Africa and beyond the pillars of Hercules and eastwards to the Phoenicia itself. Even after the destruction of uh, Carthage by Rome in the Third Punic War, Carthage was soon refounded as a Roman colony. From archaeobotanical records, we know that six pulse crop species uh, have been identified in ancient Carthage. Lentil and pea and broad bean and bitter veg and chickpea and grass pea. Besides cereals and pulses, olive uh, must have played a prominent role in the diet of the Carthaginians, and olive oil and olives was a major export item during the Roman times. Olive oil formed part of the compulsory delivery of agricultural produce to Rome, and if you remember, uh, on the episode of olive oil, we talked about a huge mound, a hill nowadays in Rome, which uh, was made by broken amphorae, which were carrying uh, olive oil from Spain and from North Africa, such as Tunisia, today, or Carthage. Generally, the waste of olive pressing, consisting of pulp and broken fruit stones, may have been used as fuel in ancient Carthago. As we said, the uh, Carthaginians were master agriculturalists and farmers, and in addition to olive, various other fruit trees uh, were cultivated in Carthage area. So we have grape and fig and pomegranate, and the mulberry, and peach, and plum, and almond. Generally, Punic Carthage was a renowned area for its high standard of fruit growing, and this has also been evidence on the archaeobotanical record. This uh, high fruit cultivation and importance also stayed true until the Byzantine period. In terms of uh, foreign foods, including the diet and the the, um, trade, of ancient Carthage, there is evidence of uh, seeds of stone pine and uh, remains of uh, hazelnuts and walnuts. So stone pine seeds uh, from Punic times reveals contact with the western Mediterranean. So we know anyway that Carthage had colonies in Spain and the western parts of Europe, but we see that on the archaeobotanical record. Egyptian plum, Cordia mixa, may have been an import from Egypt. And the Levant reflecting the sphere of influence from the east, basically, from uh, the mother cities. We talked about the Phoenicians being master navigators and the Carthaginians took this to a step further. Carthaginians were even uh, more well known and famous for the naval explorations, especially on the western coast of Africa, and um, there is one source of a voyage called Periplus in ancient Greek which talks about Hanu the Navigator, uh, who sailed westwards out of Cadiz and south around the African coast. Analysis of the remaining and surviving texts suggests that he might have reached as far south as Gabon. The legend is that he dispatched uh, a fleet of 60 ships to explore and colonize the northwest coast of Africa, and he sailed through the Straits of Gibraltar, the Pillars of Hercules as they were known in antiquity, founded seven colonies along the African coast of what is now Morocco and then continued the exploration southwards around the Atlantic coast of the continent. The importance of the city in food history derives from the agricultural skills that flourished in Carthaginian North Africa. Owing to skillful irrigation and the development of crop varieties, notably the fruit varieties, the region was probably more productive under the Carthaginian government than ever before or since. Rome benefited in several ways from its Carthaginian inheritance. Farmers grew African crops and varieties. They learned new methods from the Punic agriculture Manual by Mago, which was translated at the expense of the Roman Senate. And Roman proprietors took over Carthaginian estates in what became the Roman province of Africa. Archestratus. Had praised the parrot races of Carthage. Remember those faces we talked about in the in the episodes about Archestratus for the specialties of the region under Rome. Carthaginians are said by Aristotle to have been the developers of the salted tunny business in uh, Gadis, which is the modern-day Cadiz. This trade continued, and its product continued to receive high praise in Roman times, but is no longer linked with the Carthage. They also traded in Silphium, from inland Serenaica, Breaching the attempted monopoly of the Greek city-state of Cyrene. We talked about Sylphium extensively in a couple of episodes in the past. Check them out. To classical Greeks, Phoenicia was a source of wine, of wheat called Semidalis, and of dates. Also sumac, storax, balsam, and other aromatics. Most of this stuff, with the exception obviously of sumac, balsam, and storax, would become staples of uh, Carthage. According to Archestratus, around 350 BC, the best bakers came from Phoenicia. In the Roman period, the Phoenician cities were less important, having by now lost their long-distance trade to Antioch and Alexandria. However, Tyre and Sidon were the centres of the purple dyeing industry.
0: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: The luxurious banqueting of Straton, king of the Phoenician city of Sidon in the 4th century BC, is described by Theopompus. Straton, the king of Sidon, surpassed all of men in luxury and devotion to pleasure. For, as Homer has represented, the Phoenicians as living feasting and drinking. And listening to harp players and rhapsodists, so did Straton pass the whole of his life, and so much the more devoted to pleasure was he than they that the Phoenicians, as Homer reports, used to hold their banquets in the company of their own wives and daughters. But Straton used to prepare his entertainments with flute playing and harp playing and live playing women, and he sent for many courtesans from Peloponnesus, and for many musicians from Ionia and for other girls from every part of Greece, some skillful in singing and some in dancing, for exhibitions of skill in which they had contests before himself and his friends. And with these women he spent a great deal of his time. He then, delighting in such a life as this, and being by nature a slave to his passions, was also especially urged on by rivalry with Nicocles, for he and Nicocles were always rivaling one another, Each of them devoted all his attention to living more luxuriously and pleasantly than the other, and so they carried their emulation to such a height as we have heard, that when either of them heard from his visitor what was the furniture of the other's house, and how great was the expense gone by the other for any sacrifice, he immediately set to work to surpass him in such things. And they were anxious to appear to all men prosperous and deserving of envy not but what neither of them continued prosperous throughout the whole of their lives, but were both of them destroyed by a violent death. You should hear the opulence and the luxury of uh, the Phoenicians. It's been described um, in um, <laughs> very stark terms here. And similarly, I think in the same vein, we can think of, um, of the riches of Carthago in a similar manner. The heydays of Carthago, they would have seen banquets, and feasts and uh, foods, exotic, spiced with um, spices from India and Ethiopia, as we said. Another significant food introduction by Phoenicians and Carthaginians was uh, the pomegranate. If the Latin name of the fruit, malum punicum, or Phoenician apple, can be relied on as evidence, cultivation might have been introduced to Italy and possibly to Greece and Gaul, too, by the Phoenicians and Carthaginians. Pomegranates were perhaps more significant mythologically than in the diet. They were offered to the Phoenician goddess Astarte, and to several Greek goddesses. Persephone, while in the underground, is said to have sucked one pomegranate seed, and thus to have condemned herself to remain there for a third of every year. The Carthaginians were also early makers and traders of phissos you know, garum, producing it along the coast of the Lake of Tunis, in modern-day Tunisia. A Punic shipwreck from the 5th century BCE, found off the coast of Ibiza, may have been carrying a cargo of fishos stored in amphorae made in Gadis, which is in modern-day Spain, as we said, which is Gadith, and Tingi, which is in modern-day Morocco. Strabo, in geography, writes, next is the island of Hercules, near to Carthage, and called Combraria on account of the mackerel taken there, from which the finest garum is made. It lies 24 stadia from Carthage. Later on, in Roman times, the whole province of Carthage, the modern-day Tunisia, Africa, as we said is called, was one of the granaries of Rome, and much of the wheat was shipped to Rome through the harbour of Carthage. The considerable production of wheat on large estates suggests that in northern Tunisia, conditions for cereal growing were quite good. However, this may be true only to a certain extent. In a large part of northern Tunisia, soil moisture may have been a limiting factor. As is indicated on the map of present-day vegetation and land use of Tunisia, fallowing is practiced in a broad zone through the north of the country. To increase the moisture content of the soil, the rain-fed fields are left fallow every other year, In this way, the crop can profit from an extra moisture held over the previous winter rains. There is no reason to assume that in Roman times, conditions for arable farming were more favourable than present. Consequently, at least in part of the wheat production area, only half of the arable land may have been under cultivation at the same time. From the few and sparse evidence we have of recipes and cooking in ancient Carthago, I want you to imagine the life in this ancient bustling metropolis, this huge city of nearly 200,000 souls, working and living in an age that the Carthaginian navy was exploring and trading with the furthest corners of the known world and bringing back and forth foods and product which would have been unknown otherwise to many of these people. Trade in spices and fruits and olive oil and wine from the furthest west of Africa all the way to India and as far south as Ethiopia. Spices such as black pepper, silphium from Cyrenaica, garum made local in Carthage and in the huge uh, fisheries in Cadiz or Gadir in ancient uh, Carthaginian. Tuna from Sardinia, ginger from Ethiopia, incense from Arabia. I want you to imagine the smells wafting through the air of this bustling ancient metropolis while you're walking her cobblestone streets. The aroma of freshly baked bread with emmer wheat, the smell of sacrificial burning meat or nido from the temples of Baal and Astarte, the fried and grilled foods of the port tavernas, mingling with the iodine sea air, the intoxicated incense from the sacred shrines, the intense olive-perfumed smoke from the houses of the city, with the sweet aroma from the drying dates, herbs and figs, mixed with the fermenting yeasty smells of grapes and wine, creating an inescapable map of the huge Phoenician new town, Coscarthago or Carthage, In the phoenician language means new city all of the above smells mixed with the heavy inescapable smell of the fish emanating from the not so distant garum industries always of course out of the city in a safe distance but increasingly linked with the trade in the mediterranean and the luxurious banquets of aristocratic athenians syracusians phoenicians and carthaginians garum the fermented fish sauce which transforms dishes with its umami magicness, was a luxury table condiment, most likely firstly perfected by our Carthaginian protagonists. They surely utilized the best, freshest big fish, such as tuna, bonito, bream, to create the higher quality sauce that later Roman authors praised, from the Iberian peninsula especially, from towns of Carthaginian origin. All these smells wafting through the city air mingling together and bringing alive to us this highly complex and advanced society that unfortunately the Romans destroyed almost completely. As we said, nothing from Carthaginian literature or scientific manuals or anything else survives. But we have some tantalizing evidence. There is a recipe called Carthaginian porridge which goes like this. Puls Punica. Cook Carthaginian porridge like this. Put a pound of emmer groats into water and ensure that they are properly soaked. Put the emmer groats into a clean bowl. Add three pounds of fresh cheese, half a pound of honey and one egg and mix everything together well. Transfer to a new pot. This is from uh, uh, Agricultura by Cato, And this is exactly the end of the recipe. That's where it stops, which is a bit... Weird, it seems the recipe breaks off before it has finished the descriptive task of it. So the expectation is for a cooking process to be mentioned, yet there is none. We don't know what happened there, perhaps. It was obvious what's the next step. In any case, emmer groats are cereal grains that had the husks removed. The term used here is alica, which are specifically groats from emmer wheat. It is fundamental to use an excellent honey. And Columella considers that the best one is either savoury uh, or thyme serpilum honey. And of course you want some great cheese as well, some delicious cheese, and something nice and fresh and uh, from goat perhaps, something to give a bit of flavour. So according to Pliny, spelt was pounded in a wooden mortar, sifted three times to obtain the various qualities of alica, from the coarsest to the finest, and then whitened with uh, gypsum. Don't do that. The name porridge perhaps is a misnomer because the consistency of the dish is more like a pudding-like, but its substantial nature is more appropriate for beginning a working day than a rounding off a meal. So it's not something that we can consider as sweet, rather than something that is more like um, a breakfast, a hearty breakfast. In our modern day, we could make it with uh, 300 grams of fresh um, ghost cheese, 100 grams of uh, wheat, um, well, wheat per se, but probably with uh, some... Um, Emmer grains, uh, about 60 grams of uh, honey, organic uh, thyme honey, and one uh, organic large egg. So, grate or musty cheese and mix it with the emmer grains in a heavy casserole, still in the honey so it's well distributed. Whisk the egg and fold it to the cheese and wheat mixture. Then, gently press the mixture so the surface is even. Put a lid on the casserole and place it in the oven preheated to 109 degrees Celsius, around 25-30 minutes. Another remain of sort of a recipe is the recipe for Passum, which was recorded in the Agricultural Manual by Mago, the Punic writer, as we said earlier on. Obviously, the original work is lost, but the recipe is quoted in a later Latin work, De Agricultura, by Columella, and Passum is a, a sweet wine. So Mago gives the following instructions for excellent Passum. Harvest well-ripened, very early bunches of grapes. Reject any mildewed or damaged ones. Fix in the ground forked branches or stakes, not over four feet apart, linking them with poles. Lay reeds across them and spread the grapes on these in the sun, covering them at night to keep dew off. When they have dried, pick the grapes, put them in a fermenting vat or jar and add the best possible must, so that they are just covered. When the grapes have absorbed it all and have swelled in six days, put them in a basket, press them and collect the passum. Next, tread the pressed grapes, adding very fresh must made from other grapes that have been sun dried for three days. Mix all this and put the mixed must through the press. Put this passum secundarium into sealed vessels immediately, so that it will not become too austerum. After 20 or 30 days, when fermentation has ceased, rack into other vessels, seal the lids with gypsum and cover them with skins." This information that he gives us is very valuable. For a start, grapes that were to be sun-dried had to come from early maturing varieties, so they would ripen fully and dry in the sun before the autumn rains began. Any rotten and spoiled fruit had to be discarded, or the entire batch of grapes would rot in the sun. The grapes were not spread out on the ground, but on a stand, away from the dampness of the ground, and protected from the rain. Even at night, they were covered, so they would not absorb moisture from the cold air, which would delay the drying process. And Megun does not stipulate how many days the grapes have to lie in the sun, as uh, we've seen in similar epic poems by Hesiod. What mattered was that the fruit dried out. It was known by then that this did not always take the same days, but depended on the natural factors mentioned above. As we said, Mago's manual was a scientific manual. Numidian chicken. Finally, the last recipe we can kind of attribute to Carthaginians is Numidian chicken. It goes like this, from the book of Apicius. Prepare the chicken, clean it and parboil it. Season it with pepper and asafoetida before frying it in a pan. Next, grind pepper, cumin, coriander seed, asafoetida, roux, fig dates and pine nuts. Moisten this with vinegar, honey, fish sauce, and oil to taste. When boiling the sauce, thicken it, strain it, and pour it over the chicken. To serve, sprinkle with pepper. And that's it. Remember to rate and review the podcast wherever you can. This podcast can only exist with your generous support. So please, if you are enjoying these episodes, Write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Acast or wherever else you get your podcast from. It really helps other people to discover this podcast and um, make it more visible to people who love food and history and uh, recipes. Please share it with your friends and family. And also, I would love to hear from you, so do contact me on social media like Instagram, which I'm there as The Delicious Legacy, or on Twitter or on Blue Sky now. And um, yeah, if you want to get in touch, uh, do email me at thedeliciouslegacypodcast at gmail.com. And of course, um, if you want the episodes ad-free and early with extra content plus uh, unique recipes for your eyes and only, do join me on Patreon from $3 a month. Thank you for listening. And remember that even with all the distraction that the Romans brought to Carthage, the civilization survived, their achievements are still with us, and at the end, about 100 years later, Romans rebuilt Carthage as a Roman colony, so even that destruction wasn't forever. Many thanks to Pavlos Kapralos for the music, for the beginning theme of this episode, since um, it's inspired by the Carthaginian music, and the theme in the middle of um, the podcast, around 10 minutes in, which... Um, songs were created especially for this episode this is going to be the last episode of this series series 3 episode thirteen. I hope you really enjoyed it and um, I'll be back in a couple of weeks for season 4 of the Delicious Legacy podcast with many exciting episodes and uh, guests stay tuned take care I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy podcast